You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. A time when newly wedded couples celebrate their life together, whether it be for a quick getaway or an elaborate vacation. But in ancient and medieval times, the tradition wasn't always celebratory. Some historians point to the ancient practice of marriage by capture. Essentially, a woman was taken by the groom or his family and married off. The couple was hidden from the bride's family until the marriage was consummated, making it too late to nullify the union. If the woman was no longer chaste and potentially pregnant, her place in society was tarnished. Thankfully, over time, alliances and contracts gave way to courtships, which forever changed the honeymoon. By the 1800s, many women became trailblazers, selecting both their own groom and their honeymoon destination. Theodosia Burr was one of those women. A prodigy and the apple of Father Aaron Burr's eye, Theodosia met plenty of soldiers and commanding officers during the Revolutionary War. The family remained close with others who had helped fight against the British, including Joseph Brandt, a celebrated Mohawk chief. Theodosia enjoyed the great outdoors, and during a social gathering in New York City during the late 1700s, Brandt offered to show her the yet untamed portions of New York State whenever she wanted to go. On February 2nd of 1801, at 17 years of age, Theodosia married Joseph Alston, a wealthy Southerner. Instead of heading to Europe, a popular choice for rich newlyweds, the couple accepted Brandt's earlier offer and honeymooned at his home on the Grand River. The trek wasn't easy, the two arrived accompanied by a caravan of pack horses and several staff members. When the couple returned, they told stories about the area's beauty, especially the breathtaking sight of Niagara Falls. Inspired, other brides began to choose the location for their honeymoons. Elizabeth Patterson picked it for hers, with Jerome Bonaparte, Napoleon's younger brother. Tourism boomed with the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825, making it possible for the middle class to enjoy the destination, too. Once railroads began to carry passengers all over the country, newlyweds arrived at Niagara Falls every week. In 1841, My Niagara Falls Honeymoon became the song of the year. The falls became the place to honeymoon in the United States. Marilyn Monroe starred in the 1953 film Niagara, further boosting its popularity. Tourists flocked to the area, taking in the local shops, fashionable hotels, and natural sites, Some ventured out to Prospect Point Observation Tower. Boat tours became another favorite attraction. Departing and arriving on the American side, the Maid of the Mist took visitors close enough to feel the spray coming from the falls. The falls also provided power to local areas. Casinos flourished on the Canadian side. Musicians and theater troops found work there, too. And as thrilling as superstars, honeymooners, and photographers were, The falls attracted something more. Daredevils, 
I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Niagara Falls attracted more daredevils than any other natural wonder in the world. The unforgiving and turbulent current, the sheer height and gusting wind brought adrenaline and fortune seekers looking to push the limits of their craft. Humans have always found dangerous stunts and acrobatics entertaining. And once one has been mastered, the next performer has to come up with a bigger, wilder, and riskier act. With the explosion of entertainment choices over the years, audiences always demand something new, something grander, more elaborate, more death-defying. And the daredevils oblige. Some have been barnstormers, uh, pilots who perform in aerial shows, wingwalkers stepped from the cockpit and onto the wings in midair, human cannonballs launched themselves from catapults and cannons, and, of course, tightrope walkers balanced on thin ropes and wires over mountain passes, skyscrapers, and, as you might have guessed, Niagara Falls. French-born Charles Blondine always had a talent as an acrobat, making his stage debut when he turned five. He traveled to the U.S. in 1855, and after performing with an equestrian troupe, Charles decided to try walking a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Given the public's morbid fascination with such feats, he knew his performance would draw large crowds. After announcing his intention to cross the falls in 1858, people across the nation placed bets on whether he'd survive. He arrived at the falls in the winter, and after taking in the amount of snow and the biting cold winds, he chose to delay the crossing until summer. On June 30th of 1859, he returned, joined by over 25,000 spectators. A hemp rope 1,300 feet long and just two inches in diameter, and an ash wood pole 26 feet long were his only tools. Charles never used a net, believing that such preparations only made an accident more likely to happen. While his manager explained the logistics of walking a tightrope to the crowd, Charles, dressed in pink tights to match the colors of the slowly setting sun, took his first steps onto the rope. Children hid behind their mother's skirts. The women stole glances around their parasols. Everyone held their breath as he moved forward, using the 50-pound pole to counterbalance himself on the thin rope. When he reached the halfway point, he stopped and abruptly sat down. Several people in the crowd fainted from the building's stress. Charles didn't appear nervous, though. He called out to the maid of the mist and dropped a line. Instead of lowering himself onto the boat, he asked the captain if they happened to have any wine. The captain secured a bottle, and Charles hauled up the line. He drank the whole bottle, got to his feet, and, to the crowd's surprise, broke out into a run. The center line sagged with the effort. That didn't slow him down, though. He continued to run until he reached the Canadian side. Once he stepped on solid land, a band struck up Home Sweet Home. After a 20-minute rest, Charles strapped a camera to his chest and stepped back onto the rope to return to the American side. 200 feet out, he paused again, affixed his pole to the wire, set up the camera, and snapped a picture before resuming his walk. The return trip took him 23 minutes. He announced to the American crowd that he'd return for an encore performance on July 4th. Mark Twain called him an adventurous ass for his endeavor. Others insisted the performance was a hoax. Charles repeated the stunt on July 4th without a pole. 
This time, he added feats like walking backward and laying down on the rope and turning over. On the return trip, he covered his head with a sack. He made several more crossings in the coming weeks, drawing even larger crowds. On July 15th, President Millard Fillmore was in attendance when Charles added backflips, somersaults, and even pushed a wheelbarrow across the rope. Two weeks later, he carried his manager across on his shoulders. The added weight snapped a few of the anchor ropes, but the pair made it across unharmed. In his next performance, he crossed in the dead of night, with his arms and legs in shackles. By the end of his career, Charles Blondine had crossed Niagara Falls an astounding 300 times. Not once did he consider a net or taking out life insurance. To him, that was too much of a risk. While Charles may have been the most dramatic daredevil to cross Niagara Falls, he certainly wouldn't be the last. Maria Spelterini crossed in 1876, making her the first woman to do so. While there's not much on record about her childhood, it's thought that her parents were circus performers in Italy. She began walking tightropes when she was just three years old. The Spelterinis toured Europe, and Maria's solo performances made her a star. After the American Civil War, she moved her career to the United States. In July of 1876, America celebrated its first hundred years as a country. People flocked to the Centennial International Exhibition in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Niagara Falls festivities competed with Philadelphia's, and they knew they needed something to draw in the crowds. Charles Blondine's acts would be tough to follow. The word of Maria's talents on the tightrope had spread, and they offered her the job. She was just 23 years old when she crossed on July 8th of 1876. The crowds cheered her both from the American and Canadian sides. Having drawn plenty of spectators, she was hired for a repeat performance four days later. For her second walk, she strapped baskets of peaches to her feet. For her third performance on July 19th, she wore a bag over her head. And after that, she crossed with her feet and wrists in manacles. Maria made a fifth and final appearance, crossing the falls on July 26th, before heading back to Philadelphia to perform at the exhibition. She and Charles had set the stage for more daredevils to make the cross, each one trying to upstage their predecessors. Clifford Calverley came to Niagara Falls in 1887. While his walks weren't as elaborate or daring as Charles or Maria's, he made his mark by setting speed records, crossing over the falls 10 minutes faster than anyone else. His fastest clocked in at just two minutes and 32 seconds. Not to be outdone when it came to stunts, in later crossings, he skipped rope, hung by one arm, hung by one foot, and balanced on a chair. At 21 years old, James E. Hardy became the youngest cross in the summer of 1861. 16 years later, in 1887, Niagara Falls had another first. Stephen Peer was a local and grew up watching Charles Blondine and the others cross the falls. Unlike them, Stephen didn't learn tightrope walking as a child, but though he started at 40, he didn't let age get in the way. He practiced with ropes made of woven grapevines between two trees in a family orchard. From there, he entertained locals by walking a tightrope across Main Street. His big break came when he signed on as an assistant to professional tightrope walker Henry Bellini. Henry had come to the falls from Australia in 1873. Instead of making a full crossing, his routine was to walk to the halfway point and dive into the water below. 
1886, he jumped from the upper suspension bridge, and a rescue boat hauled him out of the water unconscious and with broken ribs. Henry continued to instruct his young protege, though word spread that he had a bad temper during his lessons. One day, when Henry wasn't looking, Stephen used his mentor's ropes. He hopped up on the line and easily skipped across to the cheering crowds, then began his trek back. When Henry heard the commotion and saw the crowds applauding, he flew into a rage. He began to cut the rope while Stephen was still out on it. He cut two of the three lines before onlookers stopped him, and Stephen made it safely across. The locals ran Henry out of town after that. Stephen returned for a repeat performance on June 22nd of 1887. Three days later, he became the fall's first fatality. A passerby discovered his body on the banks of the gorge below his cable. Some locals suggested he might have been drinking. Others thought he'd met a more nefarious death at the hands of a rival. The coroner ruled it a suicide. It was commonly thought that all daredevils harbored a death wish, a theory that Stephen's family strongly disagreed with. Regardless, the circumstances surrounding his death remained a mystery, which naturally added to the fall's popularity. Like all forms of entertainment, if a stunt has been done enough times, the novelty wears off. After a while, watching the tightrope walkers venture across the falls lost some of the thrill. Spectators wanted something more death-defying. Little Annie Edson had no interest in playing with dolls. Instead, the locals often recalled seeing her climbing trees and playing sports. They described her as having a lively imagination and an insatiable thirst for adventure stories. Annie's personality wasn't the social norm for girls in the 1830s and 40s, but her parents never pressured her to be more feminine. The family owned a highly profitable flour mill, and she and her seven siblings lived a charmed life. Later, Annie completed higher education, received an honors degree, and became a teacher. She met one David Taylor, and the two soon wed. But tragedy struck twice. Their young son died in infancy, and soon afterward, David was killed during the Civil War. Now on her own with no income, Annie returned to teaching, often traveling the country to find steady work. Her love of dance inspired her to open a school in Bay City, Michigan. The business proved unsuccessful, but she didn't stop trying. She found work teaching music in Sault Ste. Marie, San Antonio, and Mexico City. Along the way, she inadvertently found adventures of her own. Annie survived a house fire in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and an earthquake in South Carolina. She had been through a lot and was certainly down on her luck. In Texas, robbers held up her stagecoach. She refused to give them the money hidden in her dress, even when one of the men leveled a gun at her head. Defiantly, she told him to pull the trigger, as she'd rather be without her brains than her last dollars. Annie returned to Bay City for work. Finding none and fast becoming desperate, she settled near Saginaw Bay in 1898 to teach dance and etiquette to children. Things seemed to be turning around until the lumber industry faltered. Once more, she found herself in financial straits. It was 1901, and newspapers were filled with stories about the Pan American Exposition in Niagara Falls. Always the adventurous one, Annie began to plot. At 63 years old, she might not be able to walk a tightrope, but she could do something no one else ever had, go over the falls. She had a barrel custom-made from white oak. 
but when complete, it stood four and a half feet tall and three feet wide. It was about as large as an icebox, or a small coffin, depending on how you viewed Annie's plan. She arrived in late October and hired two assistants. High winds made the first attempt too treacherous for the boat. The conditions were better the next day, the 24th. At around two o'clock that afternoon, Annie and her assistants departed from Port Day with excited spectators cheering them on. Annie slid into the harness attached to the inside of the barrel. The assistants packed in pillows and handed her a breathing apparatus that would supply about an hour's worth of air. Though she didn't show it, the thought of the barrel crashing, much less sinking to the bottom, terrified her. Once inside with the lid tightly shut, assistants lowered the barrel into the water. The barrel bobbed and swirled in the current, and the roar of the approaching falls grew louder. Annie thought of the stagecoach robbers who'd held a gun to her head. Though she couldn't see it, she now faced a different threat of death. On shore, spectators gasped. The barrel raced along, then lurched forward over the edge of the 167-foot drop. The barrel tumbled downward and vanished. Strong undercurrents pulled it along the bottom, slamming it into rocks, causing cracks that let water seep in. Then the barrel shot upward to the surface. The churn took hold, spinning it and sending it to the bottom again. Onlookers stood horrified. Annie and the barrel were gone. Minutes later, the men on a rescue boat spotted the barrel as it bobbed to the surface again. They quickly fished the barrel from the water. Annie popped out, bruised and nauseated. With her forehead bleeding from a large gash, she waved to the crowd. The Maid of the Mist blew its horn in celebration, and those packed on board to get a close-up of the event applauded and waved back. The newspapers printed the story, and Annie rose to fame. It wouldn't last, though. A dishonest manager stole her money. Women's rights had come a long way from honeymoons, but in the 1800s, financial institutions required women to have a man's approval. When asked by a reporter if she would consider a repeat performance, Annie replied that she'd rather face a cannon than go over the falls again. Annie's health suffered. She blamed her near-blindness on the trip over the falls and the gash on her head. Near penniless once more, Anne regained some money with interviews, public appearances, a memoir, and a reenactment of her stunt for silent film. Though she managed to eke out a living, she passed away broke and in relative obscurity on April 29th of 1921 in Niagara County. Close friends and fans attended her funeral on May 5th. That same day, a celebrity arrived in town in preparation for the film The Man from Beyond. He had been hired to swim across the rapids. The swim was dangerous, but the crew made sure to tether the star to safety lines. There had been plenty of deaths in the rapids before. In 1883, Captain Matthew Webb, who had been the first person to swim the English Channel without assistance, drowned while attempting to swim the Niagara Rapids. The locals weren't thrilled about the filming happening on the day of Annie's funeral, but one particular scene angered them the most. It called for a canoe with stunt dummies to go over the falls. The Niagara Gazette reported on both the funeral and the movie shoot, criticizing the movie and those associated with it for filming, particularly the canoe scene, on the day of Annie's funeral. Locals commented that the film's stars benefited with a much higher payout than Annie's real-life plunge took in. 
Annie had not only been the first person to go over the falls and survive, but she'd also been the only woman to attempt the feat. The celebrity met plenty of resistance around town, and police and others continually reminded him that he couldn't and shouldn't attempt to go over the falls. Irked by the continued reminders, he stated that if he decided to go over, he would, and that he wouldn't get hurt. The townspeople found his attitude and comments a bit disrespectful. Annie was a local hero. They called her the Queen of the Mist. After filming ended that day, the star seemingly realized how he'd come across. It's said he went to the Oakwood Cemetery and visited a section dedicated to Niagara Falls daredevils called Stunter's Rest. There, he spent time in front of Annie's grave. You see, he'd once been a daredevil himself before he turned to acting as a lucrative source of income. That celebrity was Harry Houdini. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring, and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh Fresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her. Each in women's petite and plus sizes. And Stafford and Mutual Weave for him. Style and comfort for all, even big and tall. Plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't get distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. When we think of daredevils, we think of those like Annie who risk life and limb for fame or fortune. There's another kind of daredevil, though, ones who don't do it for the glory. They do it to save other people's lives. Such was the case on February 18th of 1952. A 504-foot tanker called the SS Pendleton was headed south in near-whiteout conditions 10 miles off the coast of Chatham, Massachusetts. Rough seas accompanied the heavy snow. The nor'easter was a record-breaker, hammering New England with more than 30 inches of snow in two days. As the last daylight faded from the sky, the Pendleton's crew did their best to keep from being tossed overboard and prevent the ship from veering off course. Just after dark, a loud crack broke over the sound of the wind, waves, and shouts. The ship listed sharply to one side before breaking into two. The captain and seven crewmen on the bow were left without power and began to drift south. The 32 men on the stern had power, but knew they wouldn't stay afloat for long. 
Unable to send an SOS to nearby ships, the best the men could do was hope someone would spot them, despite the near-zero visibility. Mid-morning the following day, an SOS came in from another tanker, the Fort Mercer. They'd also snapped in half and needed immediate assistance. The Chatham lifeboat station sent rescue teams and an airplane to aid in locating the ship some 20 miles off the coast. While in search for the Mercer, the Coast Guard picked up the Pendleton on their radar. It took them a few minutes to realize they had two broken ships. Commanding Officer Daniel Webster Clough dispatched First Class Bernard Weber to the Pendleton. As afternoon turned to dusk, Weber assembled a makeshift crew. Most of the men were untested when it came to dangerous situations at sea, but they understood the risks. By all accounts, they were embarking on a suicide mission. The 36-foot lifeboat, called the CG-36500, set out in the dark and the blinding snow. Not long after leaving the harbor, they suffered damage. Now they were searching for a sinking ship in the dark, without a compass, and in the worst nor'easter the coast had ever recorded. And even worse, the damage also took out their lights, so other ships couldn't see them either. The crew pushed onward, singing songs to steady their nerves and pass the time in the 60-foot waves. Then, out of the darkness, came the shrieks and groans of twisting metal. In front of them, a huge hunk of tanker rose from the water, then vanished into the foam before reappearing once more, towering over the lifeboat. Weber steered the lifeboat around while the men shone searchlights, illuminating two things, the ship's name, the USS Pendleton, and a man aboard, waving frantically. They couldn't believe anyone had survived. He disappeared into the wreckage and returned, this time with a line of men. They tossed over one of the ship's ladders, but it couldn't reach the lifeboat. With no other choice, the men aboard the Pendleton climbed down one by one to take a leap, doing the best to time their jumps to the rough waves, nor'easter winds, and ever-shifting distance between ladder and boat. When they let go of the ladder, some dropped onto the lifeboat. Those who fell into the sea were scooped out of the frigid water before the waves carried them off. The strong winds slammed the ladder into the tanker's side while the men made their daring escape. Weber had a problem. His boat could only carry a dozen people, and they had twenty on board already, plus another twelve still aboard the Pendleton. If they left now, the remaining men would be dead before he could return. He and his men decided that everyone would either live together or die together. The Pendleton's cook, George Myers, stayed above the tanker to help steady the ladder. When he was alone, he at last began his descent. The Pendleton groaned and began to sink. Myers jumped. A massive wave slammed into them, crushing Myers between the lifeboat and the Pendleton. Unable to retrieve his body, Weber steered the boat away from the sinking ship. Weber guided the damaged lifeboat back to the pier, entirely on instinct. A crowd of women and children awaited them. Many of them cried as they greeted their loved ones. Others cried when they learned that the crew on the tanker's other half had been lost. In 1981, the CG-36500 was restored to its former glory for a public ceremony, with risk-taker Bernard Weber and his wife aboard. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto 
researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Since every minute counts when you're a new parent, who wants to waste time washing bottles? Transform this daily chore with the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro, the first machine that automatically washes, sterilizes, and dries bottles, pump parts, and sippy cups at the push of a button. Its 20 spray jets clean everything 100%. Plus, it sterilizes with steam, then dries with germ-free air. Don't waste time on tedious handwashing. Let the Baby Bretza Bottle Washer Pro do it for you. Shop now at babybretza.com.